work out how much you need to be happy. Is there a rule of thumb? Um, it's a lot less than you think. That's my rule of thumb. Because the things that make you happy are things like the quality of social relationships, as we are finding during lockdown. Um, owning that second or third home, it might be a nice thing to have, and I'm not knocking it, but it's not going to particularly affect your well-being. It's not going to make you any happier than you would otherwise have been. And if that's stopping you and needing to own these things is stopping you from doing other stuff in life, you will be less happy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today I'm chatting with Chris Bard. Chris is the founder and former CEO of Ovation Finance. And I'm talking to Chris because he is the one of the UK's foremost experts in selling your business to an employee trust. It, it's the route that he chose to exit his business. And now he's written a book about it, The Eternal Business. And he advises business owners on how to do it. So we have a chat about that today because there are a number of people that I meet who have run a business for, started a business and run it for maybe 10 or 15 or even 20 years. And they see no reason to sell their business to somebody who's going to break it up. They look at business owners around them who sold their business and, and then the team they'd spent 20 years working with gets decimated or falls out with the new owners. And so they're looking for another way through the how do I extract value for my life's work? And so creating an employee trust and selling your business to an employee trust and then moving out of the control of your business is another way to do it. So this is an episode where we get into what are the mechanics of that with Chris. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And it's just so linked to purpose and to culture and happiness. Fantastic episode. I really enjoyed talking to Chris. I'm sure you will too. So my name is Chris Budd. I set up a financial planning business called Ovation Finance back in 1998. Um, ran that for 22 years, sold it to an employee ownership trust, or 20 years, I sold it to an employee ownership trust in 2018. Uh, I also um, spent a lot of time writing and thinking and talking about money and happiness, um, financial well-being, a phrase I um, I invented, uh, which I can I can explain that comment if you like. I also uh, play guitar. I've got uh, far too many guitars. I've got two banjos, one which I bought by accident on eBay when I was still trying to work out how it worked. Uh, and I live in Somerset with my wife, um, two children, and a little Westie, and with great well-being. Thank you, Chris. Welcome. Um, why, why did you get interested in 
employee ownership trusts? Or, or why was that? Why didn't you just sell your business to somebody else? Well, um, we've got a little time here, Dom. So, so let me start back at the beginning. Um, the little story that I tell on this is that I was, uh, um, I was suffering from what the doctor called a muzzy head, the kind of very mild depression. Couldn't work out what was going wrong. Um, what was going on with my with my head? I couldn't concentrate, and went to see the GP. Um, and she, she, as I say, called it a muzzy head. She she didn't have any tablets for it, which we were a bit frustrated by. Um, so she gave me this questionnaire, and I took this questionnaire home, and it said um, it was headed depression questionnaire. And it was one of those things, you know, when you're at school and they photocopied something for so many times, it's kind of skewed from the page and a bit faded. It was one of those quality piece uh, of a, a quality, a quality piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, really made me feel they were taking my problem seriously. And I sat at the <laughs> kitchen table, a moment I will never forget. And I opened up this depression questionnaire, and the first line said, "How many times a week do you feel like killing yourself?" And I thought. I don't think somebody else is going to solve this problem for me. You know, doctors aren't I've got a solution to this muzzy head. So a friend of mine was learning to be a business coach and she wanted me to do some, uh, to be a guinea pig. And I, I wasn't a big believer in that mumbo jumbo. So, but I went through it, did three sessions and it absolutely changed my life because it made me realize um, two things. Firstly, that I was unhappy because I wasn't writing. Um, and I've since published two novels. Um, and just about to publish the third. And I also then discovered or realized that actually what I wanted to do was slowly but surely exit my business. So uh, that was the start of the process some eight years ago, nine years ago. I, I actually then trained to become a diploma qualified business coach myself because the whole process was just absolutely just fantastic. But I then started the process of making myself the least important person in my business. That was kind of the, the target I set myself so that I could just quietly one day step aside. And I spent seven years doing that. And um, I you know, realized you know, I've been reasonably successful because I wasn't essential in the business anymore. But I still hadn't got that solution of how I was actually going to sell it. And I was dreading that bit. I've been putting it off because, um, especially in the financial advisory world, a lot of the acquirers are pretty shark-like, you know. Um, I've heard so many stories of people being shafted and not getting what they were promised and um, this kind of stuff. Some who did get all that they were promised. So, you know, I, I'm not suggesting they're all sharks. It's just I didn't know which ones were and which ones weren't. Well, and, and, the, peop and the people who sold to people who turned out to be sharks didn't do that on purpose. It just so they went in with their eyes wide open and then somehow circumstances meant they didn't get what they were expecting. In some cases, in other cases, it was entirely intended. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard enough stories to know that there are some acquirers that deliberately do it that way. Um, like I say, they may well be in a minority. I just didn't know if I was going to get one of them. Yeah. So I discovered um, a solicitor I was talking to was kind of telling me all these different ways of bimbos, bimbos, and all these different ways of potentially exiting, and none of them gave me what I wanted, which at its essence was to see the business continue. I wanted to be able to exit, but not see the business broken up or sold or merged with another company. I wanted it to continue because I have a big ego and I'm proud of the business. I'm proud of what it does and with around money and happiness and financial well-being. And I wanted to see that continue. And I just couldn't find any way of doing it. And eventually the solicitor I was talking to went, look, there's these guys called the Employee Ownership Association. Go and talk to them. You almost get rid of me, you know. 
And I went to one of their regional meetings and I came out, decision made. That is for me. That's what I want to do. So I investigated it, spent time getting the business in the right shape for it, and then eventually sold to an employee ownership trust. And it was the perfect exit for me. And did you, when you sell to an employee ownership trust, do you have to exit or was that, that was your choice? I have retained 30%. So you have to sell a controlling interest. So it is, uh, you do have to give up control. Um, but I retained uh, 30% and I'm still chairman. Um, I'm not involved day to day. Different companies do it different ways, generally speaking. So I then wrote the book, The Eternal Business, and, and I'm now... Um, so slightly tongue-in-cheek here, I am one of the UK's foremost experts in the EOT for the small business, which sounds like a grand statement, but there's only five of us. Because <laughs> 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 it's still a new area, you know. Um, but I but I generally am, and I'm also the only one that's done it myself. Um, and so I know quite I've, – I've seen a lot of situations. And where founders, particularly owners, want to carry on being involved in the business, it can be really quite tricky because – are they really giving up control? And if the employees perceive that they're not really giving up control at all, then they won't step up and you don't get any of the advantages of employee ownership. And ultimately, the owner can't leave. So, uh, yeah, you can carry on, but you've got to be careful about how you handle that. So I, the reason I wanted to get you on as a guest is because this com- I have this conversation a number of times. I, I meet people who've been running their business for maybe 10 to 20 years and you know their their business is successful but they don't want to go and work for anybody else so they don't want to sell it and go as part of the transaction and they also look at their employees and they say you know i don't really want to sell the team to anybody else and have them broken up or have them work for anybody else either but what what do you need to put in place because you the employees have got to be able to step up the business has got to still be run by somebody so was that the biggest challenge, making sure that you had a leadership team that was capable of running the business after you after you stepped upstairs? <laughs> they might, of course, be with- listening. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was with you all until the very last line. Actually, because, um, so, so look, let's just get the technicality out of the way. What happens? If, the shortcut for anybody to understand this is John Lewis. I think most people now understand how John Lewis is owned. It's owned by a trust fund and profit as and when it makes it goes to the trust fund and is distributed to the employees, which they call partners. Exactly the same principle. It's been around for 100 plus years. But in 2014, uh, the then government brought in the Employee Ownership Trust, the EOT, to make it available for the small business. So uh, to get to that position, what happens is an owner sells their shares. They set up you set up your own EOT. Okay, You sell your shares to that EOT. It doesn't have any money because you've just set it up. But it does, of course, now have the future profit of the business, which it uses to pay you out over a period of time. So that's in very, very simple terms how it works. What it means, though, is that the owner is going to be paid. And this is the key line. The owner is going to be paid from a business that they no longer control. So what that we advise means is that you should take time, and by which I mean years, getting the business to not need you so that you can just step away and trust that it will pay you to carry on. And although my business and the book is called The Eternal Business, what I really mean is long enough to get paid out. (laughs) So within that, an employee-owned business doesn't look and act like um, a privately-owned business. And so what you don't want is you don't want the leadership team thinking, great, boss is gone, I get to take over. Because that's not how an employee-owned business works. An employee-owned business, the power of it is in the employees. 
is in employee engagement and then acting and thinking like business owners. And if you have a leadership team that just steps into the shoes of the boss and starts to run it like the boss used to, the employees are going to go, well, this is rubbish. We're not going to get any say at all here. And they won't get engaged and things can actually go worse, not better. So it's really, really, really important to understand how an employee-owned business acts and thinks and how it works differently from a privately owned business. And so as you were speaking there, I'm, um, I, I don't know if you know the the Great Game of Business, the book by Jack Stack, but that in there, he, he his philosophy it isn't about employee ownership, but it's about having financial literacy for all of your employees. And I guess that's what you're saying. If you want people to understand how to generate a profit, because without the profit, they don't get a share of the profits, then that's that's the difference. It's part of it, yes, absolutely. And um, good financial education, um, uh, sharing of financial information is key, I would suggest, in the success of all of this. However, I would quote another book, Drive by Daniel Pink, uh, which is a, um, there's also, uh, which is behind me as you're looking at me at the moment. There's a few others up there, like um, Purpose Not Profit. Um, actually, especially the younger you get with employees, they're far more interested in having a say in what the business does and, in particular, helping it achieve its purpose. That's a much bigger driver for younger people than having a share of the profit, which is nice. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the um, the overriding driver that it would have been for, you know, I'm, I'm one of Thatcher's children. I'm not literally, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I grew up in the Thatcher era. So um, people of my age tend to see money as the objective. Um, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm rather different in that respect. But younger people particularly don't. They don't even know there's going to be life on the planet in 50 years time. So they're far more interested in spending their time here to lead a purposeful life than they are about, about profit. And that, for me, is the real advantage of employee ownership, is it allows employees to get involved and have a say in the business and be engaged in the business. And so how does that show up in, in your own business then, that, that purpose around happiness? So it's all about there's a, the, the, what we use in the internal business model is, is uh, we call it the flag in the ground. OK, it's the reason that the company exists. Um, Simon Sinek has made this quite a popular topic over the last few years, in a very positive way. But it's more than just, you know, the why of the business. It's how it permeates throughout the business and in particular how it aligns with the purpose of the individual employees. So if you want employees to have a voice in the business, um, excuse the language, but they've got to give a shit. And they're only going to give a shit if their personal purpose is aligned with the company's purpose. And they can only align that, that their purpose with the company purpose, if they know what the company purpose is. So we spend a lot of time with employee-owned business saying, you know, what is the point of view? Why do you exist? Um, and what do the employees think the reason is? So you asked me the question about my old business, Ovation Finance. So our purpose is that we help our clients to use their money to accumulate life. Uh-huh. rather than the other way around. So that's all about money and happiness. You know, is your money making you happy? And that's the financial planning that we do with clients. Now, what that means is the typical financial advisor doesn't think like that. They think in terms of investment management. And Ovation does all of that, pension experts, investment management, yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, for what purpose? How does this help the client to be happier? And so consequently, we get people, advisors that come to work for us who want to do that for clients who want to work with their clients about what's the purpose of your life. So they go and get coaching skills and they use this in the advice, but very, very different process than your average financial advisor. Um, so that's how that translates into my, my particular business. 
And how did they feel about becoming employees in employee-owned business? So um, I come from the don't do as I do, do as I say school of <laughs> business coaching and business advice because I made the mistakes. Um, I The one thing that I always say to owners is if you think this might be the thing for you, do not run back to your office and tell everybody because that's what I did and it was a huge mistake. <laughs> You think they're all going to say, oh, wow, that's so great. Chris, what a wonderful person you are. But they don't. They go, oh, yeah, well, what's in it for you then? You know, why do you? Um, <laughs> so uh, you've got to prepare. You've got to prepare your story and your argument and, and your reasons why and what's in it for them and what's good for the business for it, not just what's in it for me and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, the reaction from some was very positive. One or two others was less positive. And that was entirely my fault for not preparing the way properly. And uh- so not positive that they're no longer there or or they were able yeah yes in in two cases exactly that yeah the two who really didn't like it um they're no longer there and you know what though that's okay because um it might not be for everybody especially if you have people who had um ideas designs for owning shares themselves or becoming the new boss and getting to tell everybody else what to do employee ownership doesn't work like that so um it might be that it's not for everybody. Uh, again, one of the preparation that owners need to do is work out their management team. There's a lot of misunderstanding about, um, uh, you know, somebody might want to buy in but doesn't actually have any money. Uh, I speak to quite a lot. I'm sure you, sure you do. I speak to a lot of managers who are expecting to be given shares. And when I point out the huge tax bill that they would they would get if they were given shares, they they no idea no concept of it so you need to prepare your what we call an engagement plan um, to make sure your key employees have have got the best chance of understanding it and fully getting on board with it again something i failed to do so what so what should you have done differently then um taking my time taking a lot longer i took nine months from the moment i first found out about it to the date of selling and i should have taken at least twice as long as that Uh, even though i'd spent seven years getting to that point so here's, here's, here's quite a fun one. Um, I've spoken to literally hundreds since I published the book and, and set up the business to help other owners. I've spoken to literally hundreds of owners. And I say to them, it's all about um, engagement and empowering the employees, etc. And, uh, you know, there's that great statistic that 95% of people consider themselves to be above average drivers. Well, in a similar way, 95% of business owners consider their businesses to already be completely empowered. <laughs> and yet the reality is, of course, completely different to that. Um, even the most empowered firm I've ever met, when I went to the employees, they still were worried about what the hell would happen if the owner left. Owners don't realize the influence they have over their business very often. Um, I'll give you a quick story to illustrate that point, if I may. Um, so I uh, we had a marketing group that made marketing decisions and after i sold um they said look you know why don't you carry on being part of that marketing group because that's what i've always done so um i would go along to meetings and i try really really hard not to be the boss you know in this new employee-owned business and so i'd make some suggestions but i'd have to kick myself under the table sometimes and just keep quiet and all this anyway um after about six months or so the new new md asked me to leave the marketing group and i i said well why because you're dominating i said i'm not i'm really trying hard and he said no no you're not actually not because of what you're saying just because you're there um he said in the last meeting you didn't say anything for an hour 
And at the end of the hour, you had to leave early for a meeting. And then after you left, everybody else suddenly opened up. And just because I'm the founder, the visionary, whatever you want to call it, uh, because I'm in that room, everybody else is kind of afraid to speak. So founders and owners don't realize the impact and the, the influence they have over their business very often. So that's something that needs to be worked, worked out. And so you've, you ended up with a new MD. So did the management structure change? I mean, the ownership structure changed, but does the management structure change? And if so, how? Um, it should. Yes, I do believe it should, because you have to transition control. So one of the exercises we go through is called the pathways of control. Um, you asked earlier on about who runs the business. Well, it's, it's all that's changed is the shareholder. So in theory, the who runs the business doesn't need to change. But if the running of the business was dominated by the owner, then clearly they need to get out of the way. Um, I hear quite often owners will say that their employees just aren't stepping up. They use that phrase, they're not stepping up. And what I find is well, you're not stepping up because you're still in the way. And you're stopping them from stepping up. So the shareholders is the trust, the Employee Ownership Trust. They appoint the board. The board probably has a leadership team. Leadership team, depending on the size of the business, might then have an employee forum. Or it might just go direct to the employees for a smaller business. But there's this lovely circular thing because the employees can then go to the trustees as the beneficial owners of the business. And so you get this situation where um, you can go either way around and start anywhere. Let's start with an employee who's a bit fed up with the strategy of the business. So they go to the employee trustee and say, we don't really like what the board's doing because the business isn't performing. So the trustees go to the board and say, hey, guys, we're holding you to account. The business isn't performing. What's, what's going on with the strategy? The board meet. The board say, well, we looked at the strategy. It's fine. Let's get the leadership team in. Guys, what are you doing about making this strategy happen? leadership team meet and say, do you know what? We're implementing this perfectly. Oi, employees, why aren't you stepping up and working properly? So it's just gone full circle. And you realize you can't blame somebody else anymore. <laughs> and that's how you get engagement, by accountability at all levels of that pathways of control. Um, and that's how, that's how the business is run. It's still run by the board. You still get the right people making the right decisions, but you have to be very, very clear about it. And you have to make sure the employee voice is heard. And, and I guess one of the critical things there is selecting the trustees. Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we always recommend that you have three types of trustee. You should always have an employee trustee because the role of the, the trustees is to represent the interests of the employees to the board. So you should always have an employee trustee. Uh, you, it's, good, it's a good idea to have a director trustee so that there's that direct linking with the board. And then we also would suggest an independent trustee, something that we do, uh, who can bring in the kind of the knowledge and the governance for an employee-owned company. And that usually would be the chair of the trustees. Um, that's not written in stone. That's just what we think is best practice. Give me an example of something that's gone spectacularly well. You've got a business, you've got a business that's, you know, revenues are up. As yeah. a result, um, as a result of the transition, yeah. Well, the Employee Ownership Association stats uh, show that the average employee-owned business their profits go up by fifteen percent after one year, just because of the effect of employee ownership. Huh. That that, um, that just, just that that whole mental shift around engagement and yeah. and ownership and direct linkage between how we show up and the and the business. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah. absolutely fascinating. Because 
Because you've now got employees. Oh, the, the best line on this um, was the uh, National Self-Build and Renovation Centre in Swindon, right, who are an employee-owned business. And when I was researching the book, I had a chat with um, some of their employees and the receptionist, the receptionist mind, not somebody you would necessarily think of as being the obvious person, uh, the role in the business to be the most engaged. The receptionist said, Do you know what I love about this company? I don't work for the company. I am the company. Isn't that a brilliant line to hear as you, if you're the managing director of that business? Wonderful. So, yes, it's because um, it's because the employees, if you get it right, if you prepare, um, the employees are now working at a place which has purpose and meaning, which aligns with their purpose and meaning. They feel that their voice is heard. And if they've got a suggestion to be made, it will take, be taken seriously. Um, they don't get a vote. Um, you don't get uh, decision making by committee, but they do. They should have a voice. And if you get all of that right, you will get employees that give a shit and that will skip into work in the mornings. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the, the evidence I would give you for that. Um, and if, I will actually just use, if I may, um, ovation is the pandemic lockdown. Because um, they all go home. And how many bosses over lockdown have been wondering, everyone's working from home, I bet they're not bloody working properly, what's going on? Invasion employees have been absolutely magnificent because they really care about the business. Um, and they care about how we are delivering um, well-being to our clients. And they have stepped up incredibly well because they have a voice and they, they feel they have the ability to do so. And what, uh, what tends to happen, because I remember chat interviewing um, Simon Bitliff. Uh, whose business is an employee-owned business. And I think he said that the annual, last year, certainly when I interviewed him, I, I think he said that the annual bonus for his team was going to be almost equivalent to an annual their annual salary. Is there, do you have any stats around what happens to employee, employee pay? Or, or how does employee pay, does it get set any differently? Is that, is that any different? So there's a few, a few things to bring out there. Firstly, I would just point out that there is something along. If you imagine there are the number of businesses in the UK that this is perfect for, that's probably between 10 and 250 employees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just that, that, there's no rules about that. I just happen to have a stat for that, <laughs> that range. Um, so they, there are 280,000 um, businesses of that size in the UK. There are currently something around 320 EOT owned businesses. <laughs> right. Okay. So okay. next to, next Stats. to zero. Yeah. Um, I have myself just in my, my pipeline, I have 110 companies looking to use our services. Some of them won't get around to it for five years. Some of them, you know, hopefully soon, but that just goes to show that's just me. That's, that's, a, that's the wave of companies going through this. It only came out in 2014 and you need to take years to get ready. So that's why there's not many companies. So, the reason I say that is because there aren't many stats of that nature here, but I can certainly tell you companies that I know of, um, John Lewis aren't paying a bonus this year. So, you know, but they're still getting, they're no worse off. They're just not getting the bonus. Um, the, uh, what you've described that, that, uh, equivalent to annual salary, that's top end, you know, not gonna lie. Um, but, uh, I can think of uh, there. There's a tax break on it: three thousand six hundred a year income tax free to employees. Oh, okay. So, so that automatically increases the the effect of any any bonus you get. Um, you've also got the question of how it is split amongst employees as well. So, John Lewis will do it by percentage of salary. 
uh, someone like Riverford Foods, they just, I believe they just um, split the profit equally amongst everybody. And um, different companies do it in lots of different different ways between that as well. But in terms of the actual amounts, uh, it just varies enormously. I, I haven't heard any 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 specifics with that. And what um, you said you said earlier about people buying in was that you mean all, that that as an alternative to the uh, employee trust? Yeah. So um, when you sell to an EOT, the employees don't have shares. They don't get shares. They are beneficial owners, indirect owners, because the shares are owned by the trust. It's got to be controlling interest of 51%. That does mean that you've got 49% to play with. Now, you could sell 100% to the EOT. You could do what I did and keep some. I know some companies where they've um, donated some to a charitable trust, which is quite nice. Um, but there is some there that's available for management team if there is an expectation of buying in. Right. So uh, I, I confess I'm not a great fan of that route um, because you end up with a situation where the employees who know that the majority of the business is owned by a trust and therefore will never be sold, they are thinking long-term sustainable profit. 30 years, you know, I'm here forever type really positive stuff. If you've got a management team and are thinking, well, I've just bought some shares, I'll sell out in five years' time, they've got a very different timescale and different you know, um, attitude to the business. So uh, that just needs to be handled and, and to be brought out into the open at an early stage. But it can be used to manage the expectations of, um, of key employees. Okay. And so, well, yes, just, I mean, there's no equity event. So why would you want to own shares in a company... I guess dividend maybe. Yeah, dividends, but also um, you can then sell to the EOT at a later date. Okay, right. So if you're a, if you're if you're the owner and you're looking to do, plan your exit, these are some of the things that you might want to consider because you've got some key employees that you know you might want to shares to buy in somehow. Yeah, and yeah. and and the and you you being paid out the business can take a loan to pay you out or does it only can only be paid out as a result of future profit it can you can use cash so what i would say rather than a loan if possible is um in the however long it takes you to get your business ready but if it's a couple of years why don't you just accumulate some cash and you can take that as your first payment um, there's one little thing that uh, I haven't mentioned deliberately, but I will bring it out now, which is the payments to the owner are capital gains tax-free under current legislation. Um, now, the reason I haven't mentioned that is because some people, particularly kind of accountancy, corporate financy types, are out there promoting this as a tax-free exit. And not to put too fine a point on it, that's an absolute disaster because – if somebody just says, oh, look, I can get all the cash out of the business tax-free as quickly as possible, stick it to an EOT and ride off into the sunset, what you're left with is a company where your employees are going, what, what, what's going on? You know, what's this employee ownership thing? And the companies um, can fail, bluntly. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, if the employees aren't prepared for how to run the business when the owner is gone, who's just taking the cash, you've got a major problem. So the tax relief is a is a nice to have a very nice bonus but it should not be the driver for it i would suggest so i bring that out because uh, likewise if somebody is thinking i want to get a loan so that i can get all my money out at the beginning that also isn't a particularly good way of going into this 
um, it might suggest that your motives aren't the best. It's not about the long-term nature of the business, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to take all the cash and saddle the company with a big loan is not the best sign to the employees about how to go into employee ownership trust. It can be done, and there are times that it will work if you've got property to secure it against or something, but better to get paid out of a period of time and you align your interests with those of the employees. That way, the business has the best way of ending up um, lasting for a long time. And the um, the hundred or so companies that you're talking to, particular sectors that you're seeing people, you know, thinking about employee ownership versus others? No, I wouldn't say there is a sector uh, bias. It's more about uh, people who want to – businesses who are there with purpose. So um, that does tend to – uh, make some sectors more interested than others. So, for example, architects particularly uh, are very keen on this because with their town planning and putting buildings into into community, they understand purpose. They tend to be quite purpose-driven. Likewise, my old sector, financial advice, there's a lot of financial advisors who, who are more planners and they get, because they're helping their clients with purpose, so they tend to understand it. But having said that, you know, contract cleaning companies who are doing it, um, all sorts of engineering, manufacturing businesses. So there is no sector reason. It's more about whether the owner says, I would love to see this business carry on after I'm done because I think it's got a place in the world that matters. Any owner that thinks like that about their business is going to be interested in the OT. Well, and because almost it's impossible to hold that thought at the same time as, and now I want to maximise my personal wealth. I mean, those, those, are, those are sort of opposite... You know, it's not that you shouldn't get a decent return for your life's work, but, you know, most people, certainly lots of the people I speak to who, who have been interested in, in a conversation around this, they've got enough money. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's two points there. Firstly, um, don't get the impression that the EOT is a nice thing to do. You sell at a commercial valuation. So one of the rules when you submit it to HMRC is you have to have an independent market valuation. And I sometimes hear people say that, oh, well, I could get more if I did a trade sale. Bullshit. No, you don't. If you could, it would be reflected in the independent market valuation, wouldn't it? You know, Of course, there are occasions where somebody will get paid above a market valuation. I do reckon that, but they're quite rare. Um, so generally speaking, you get a fair market valuation for your for your firm. Um and I've forgotten the second point. That's a boy's little tip there. Don't never say three things. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, but I think, I think that's, I, I think that point, I think that point is very well made. Chris, I was going to just change tack and what is it that you now know? And it might be related to this or something deeper and more esoteric. What is it that you now know in life that you wish you'd known, you wish you'd known earlier or it would have been fun to have known earlier? Well, an awful lot. There, there's um, a great uh, BBC. Uh, this isn't it, by the way. But there's a great BBC advert. And BBC was Sir John Betjeman sitting on a clifftop in his in his wheelchair with a rug on his on his knees, and uh, the uh, the interviewer knelt down beside him very earnest, and they said, "Sir John, you know, do you have any regrets in life?" And he said, "Yes, I wish I'd had more sex." <laughs> 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 which was fabulous i think in business terms uh i when i started my my business um i assumed like everybody else because that's what we're told by the accountants that i was building it up to sell it 
I assumed that that was the end of my entrepreneurial story would be to sell the business. And my wife used to say, why do you, why would you sell it? Because you love it and you're really proud of it. And I would just kind of probably slightly patronizingly say, oh, you don't understand these things. That's what business is for. That's what it's all about. And I guess um, if I'd known at the beginning that I was building something that I was never going to sell that would carry on, I would have relaxed a bit. I would have enjoyed the journey a lot more than I did in the first few years because I found the first few years exceptionally stressful. And I and maybe a few other people would have been of a like mind and we could have got together and helped each other rather than me thinking all that time I was going to have to build it up to sell it, which I ended up doing, obviously, but the business continued. That's why I was so excited that day when I first saw this new way of doing things. I realized I could actually have my cake and eat it. Now, I wish I'd known that at the beginning. The uh, just, I mean, uh, typically when I'm talking to clients, they or prospects, you know, they we're talking about how their business operates. And I say, look, income, equity, and control are three separate things. Um, let's get really clear about, you know, what are we trying to achieve and, and what are the drivers? So, in the 30% that you still own in your business, is that? Is that you just own thirty percent, or is it you've you've given up the control? But are you still deriving income, or is that and is that just dividends? Yep, that's my that's my retirement income basically. Um, and uh, of those three, the control I've given up, but I do retain a few nuclear buttons. So during the period of my earnouts, if they don't pay, I get certain you know certain rights. Ah, okay. Um, I have the- I have the right to be a director or appointed director during the period of earnout. So normal sale and purchase agreement um, to, to protect my interests. And then after the earnout is finished, then I retain the dividends um, and uh, I don't have to have a, a seat on the board. But obviously, as a shareholder, I have a, I have certain rights as well. Aha, uh-huh. fantastic. Uh, Chris, you've uh, what's the book called? The book, you uh, Etern- The Eternal Business? Well, two books, The Eternal Business, yes, and also The Financial Wellbeing book, all about money and happiness. And along the way, what? What books have you, you've mentioned Dan Pink's book. Um, what other books do you think people should pick up and read? So I, I, I like to consider myself the proud owner of the largest collection of unread business books in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> There's, you know, you buy them, oh, that's a really great idea. And then it sits there and you're like, oh, they're all too long. That's why I like Daniel Pink's book, because it's actually quite short and gets on with it and get, makes his point and gets out. I love Frederick Laloux's book, um, Reinventing Organisations. And I actually managed to read about a quarter of that, which I was really proud of, because um, that's quite thick and impenetrable. I just need somebody to summarise it. Um, but the one that did have the biggest impact on my life without question is um, Mark McCormack's What They Don't Teach You at the Harvard Business School. Okay. Because um, my father gave it to me um, when I was 17 and just kind of got off to do economics at university, which I absolutely hated. And, um, and I, everybody was so busy talking especially in these you know, Thatcherite days about how to be rich and how important money is and how, how to get rich and how to make more money. And if I were to summarise Mark McCormack's message, and it's kind of become my mantra in life as well, it's this, don't be a dick. <laughs> That's kind of it. That's kind of it. And I, and, I, and I think there's a lot in that. If you just treat people with respect and kindness and love, uh, you get the same back. Um, if you treat everybody as a way of getting money out of life, well, then you're not going to be happy. All the stuff I do on the Financial Wellbeing um, podcast tells us that uh, I know that if you have, are somebody that sees money as the objective, you will be less happy than you would otherwise be. So Mark McCormack kind of set this out 30, 40 years ago. 
um, in business terms. And it was basically story after story, anecdote after anecdote, about how somebody who was a bit of a dick didn't get on very well and somebody who was really nice did. And I just thought that was a great mantra in life. Well, it uh, reminds me of uh, Give and Take by... There you always see. I shouldn't have started that anecdote. Um, Adam, no, Adam Grant. Adam Grant, give and take. And so what he says is, look, the world is full of givers and and takers. And he goes on. Is the book is a, the book is an example of uh, of where of where givers win. Like the good guy finishes on top because that's he he thinks that that's not not a common perception. But in his in his view, good guys normally finish on top. Yeah, uh, and just just to go back because I have remembered the second of the two things that I've forgotten. <laughs> uh, but actually, it's very relevant here because um, whenever I, an owner phones me up to talk about the employee ownership trust, one of the first things I say to them is, "How much do you need to sell your business for?" And they say, "Well, it's worth five million, or you know, whatever." And I say, "Forgive me, but that wasn't the question. How much do you need to sell your business for?" Because if you need a million and it's worth two, great, you've got options. Um, you don't have to sell it for two. You only need to sell it for one. And that might mean you can do it sooner rather than later. Um, at which point they generally go, well, but it's worth two. <laughs> if, if you don't think that, um, if you sell it for two, cracking. Maybe you can give some to charity, do do, do whatever with it. But if, unless you know that need number, if it's a million, but it's only worth half a million, you can't sell it yet. But you do now at least have a plan. Well, so... so that- do you do you have a rule of thumb then? Because uh, I often have a similar conversation with clients or prospective clients. I say, uh, what are you planning to do? And they say, well, we want to grow the business and then sell it. And then I say, well, how much do you want to sell it for? Which is really, which is really, and, and they say, well, I don't know how much I need. Do you have a rule? Do you have a rule of thumb? Well, firstly, they should go and get a decent financial advisor because financial advisors they have at the moment are probably talking to them about investments and pensions and not talking about what matters, which is planning. Get a cash flow forecast. That will give you the answer. It's not difficult to do. Um, For a small fee, you can get the answer to your how much is enough for you number. But I'll tell you a very quick story which just illustrates this point. I was um, looking at doing some business coaching for a couple of owners of a business. Two owners and um, one of them was going to stay in the UK. The other one, what I just got talking to them about, you know, what the plans are. He wanted to move to Australia, Australian wife, three kids. The eldest at that point was eight. He really wanted to move when he was 11 because that's a jump in schools. Mm-hmm. But um, they have a five-year plan for the business. So he was going to be when he was 13. And then I said, well, you know, how much do you need to sell the business for? And they said, six million, three million each. Now, I don't know about you, Dom, but when I hear a figure like that, I think that's an awfully round number. <laughs> it couldn't be rounder if you tried. Yeah. I get a little bit suspicious about that one. So I just started prodding, and how did you come up with that number? And the first guy says that he, you know, he wants to reinvest in other businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So he's going to need that number. No, still not convinced about that particular number. And the other guy was explaining about, his, about, about buying a house in Australia. And so I just keep questioning and saying, but why three million? Well, what's three million come from? Why, why do you need three million? And they started getting a little bit antsy. And after about 10 minutes, one of them said, look, we want three million each because that's what our mate sold his business for. There you go. That's and, the answer. <laughs> yeah. And so I said to them, well, if you sold it for four million in three years time, two million each might be enough. And he can go to Australia with his son at the time he wants to. Should we explore that? You know? Um, so I, uh, I guess if there's, if there's a way I, I treat life differently to 
Most business consultants and advisors, I don't see it purely in financial terms. I see it in happiness terms. And uh, work out how much you need to be happy. Is there a rule of thumb? Um, it's a lot less than you think. That's my rule of thumb. Because the things that make you happy are things like the quality of social relationships, as we are finding during lockdown. Um, owning that second or third home, it might be a nice thing to have, and I'm not knocking it, but it's not going to particularly affect your well-being. It's not going to make you any happier than you would otherwise have been. And if that's stopping you and needing to own these things is stopping you from doing other stuff in life, you will be less happy. So go and get some simple financial planning, work out that number, and hopefully you'll be quite pleasantly surprised. And Chris, what's the podcast? It's called The Financial Wellbeing Podcast, 60-odd-plus episodes. been doing it for about five years now, so um, not the most prolific of podcasts out there, but we uh, <laughs> uh, we spend a lot of time researching our subject matter about money and happiness. And uh, I've also set up an institute called the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing um, during lockdown with the 220-odd financial advisors now joined, so that's quite fun as well. Chris, thank you very much indeed for your time on the show today. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.